So, uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verse 13, and we come to another passage, and it's a parable unique to Luke, and it's one of four Lucan parables in his journey narrative, which we're in, that long section, that speak of money and possessions. It's a huge theme for Luke. It's one of his special contributions in Scripture, and furthermore, it's another passage and a series of passages, particularly the last few weeks, that's really hard-hitting. Um, it's a lot of comfort, yes, as all these passages have had a lot of comfort, but it's very strong admonitions. And we see that there's an aspect of Jesus's grace that is to warn us very, very directly of the serious pitfalls to genuinely following him. So let's read chapter 12, verse 13, this riveting story. Hear God's word. So Jesus has been preaching. And then someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Jesus, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this word, it's a good word. It's a word for us. And it endures forever. Thanks be to God. And so I like how the English pastor evangelist Rico Tice, he's the Christian Explored guy, how he approaches this text and he asks the question with regard to this text, you know, do you think today, do you think that you're a successful person? How would you answer that? Certainly we could be along a spectrum. His follow-up question is, what would constitute success for you? as far as you're concerned. Do you think you're a success? And therefore, what does success mean for you? And we want to be successful, and we don't want to be failures. An elderly lady at a funeral of a person who didn't answer these questions well during his life, this elderly lady said to Pastor Rico Tice, she goes, Rico, do you know what failure is? And he said, no, I, I don't. And she replied, failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. 
So I think framing this passage around success and failure is really helpful. And I think it's really appropriate today as we recognize this, this really great group of seniors. And I mean, seniors today is a really special uh, Sunday. Uh, it's a good rite of passage. We love it. Um, we celebrate you today. We celebrate your graduations, your accomplishments, your maturity. And we also charge you today, as Jeremy did, to know who you belong to to esteem your gospel blessings, and to enter your next stage with a Godward mindset. It's a quorum Deo mindset that we discussed last week, before the face of God, lived under God's gaze and for God's glory. We want you to go after true success. And so Jesus has been preaching his heart out. I mean, it's quite a, a, a sermon that Luke has recorded for us. He's talking about ultimate things and eternity. He's preaching life and death. He's preaching heaven and he's preaching hell. The most crucial issues of your existence. He's preaching whom shall we really fear, man or God? He's preaching, do you know how valuable you are to God? He's preaching, what should you acknowledge now in your life? Is it Christ? All these ultimate things. And as he's preaching such a sermon, this guy whose mind is completely zeroed in on earth, on his inheritance, on the way he thinks his elder brother is messing him over, he interrupts Jesus, like he interrupts him. The whole train of thought is interrupted in the way Luke records it, and he calls out, teacher, my, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's like screeching halt and reverse and go a different direction. And I like how Sinclair Ferguson says, this gives some consolation to preachers, that even Jesus, when he was preaching and preaching such a sermon, there are those in his congregations whose minds were a million miles away. <laughs> it also shows how tenacious is the pull to the here and now, to, to money and possessions, to slights and grievances, so much so that we can completely lose sight of eternity. Now, to the man's credit, in asking Jesus this, he does recognize him as a public authority. Uh, the rabbis of the day did answer questions such as this. They applied Old Testament law, inheritance law, so he's recognizing Jesus' status in the community. But Jesus responds just harshly, I mean, sternly to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And it's actually a loaded response. Just think about it for a second. Settle into that response. Jesus is always trying to spur us and shift our thinking because in the ultimate way, God has appointed Jesus the judge and arbitrator over him. The man standing in front of his judge and arbitrator. 
But the man's not thinking along those lines. You see, Jesus is the new Moses in Luke. And see, Moses decided cases for Israel. Even Jesus's response seems to allude to Moses. Remember that early on when he tried to break up the fight between those two Hebrews and he knew God had called him to lead Israel and he, so he's trying to break up their fight and the guy in the wrong lashes out at him and says, who made you prince and judge over us? And so it seems that maybe Jesus is actually alluding to that and challenging the guy, look, if you think of me this way, go further, go further. See who I am and what I'm here for. Like, I'm here for redemption. And Jesus has to do that for us all the time. We appeal to Jesus in our own little ways, in a narrow little myopic way so often. And Jesus tends to shift and say, go further. I'm after more than you realize. So Jesus refuses to get involved. And there's a number of ways, but for the sake of time, just two. Like he discerns underneath that request that this guy has this underlying attitude of greed. And even more than that, Jesus refuses because his mission is so much more ultimate. He's not gonna get bogged down in settling little inheritance matters when he's after securing an eternal inheritance for this man. So Jesus takes the opportunity this man's question gives him to teach everyone about another serious pitfall to real faith, to genuine discipleship. And just prior to that, the pitfall has been really the fear of man. It's a huge one. Now we have another one, a pitfall to genuine faith. He says, take care and be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And it's this forceful way to introduce what he wants to say. Take care and be on your guard. Like it's like it's, it's, it's poised, ready to, to hijack your heart and put it under lock and key. A potent aggressive threat is covetousness and greediness and avarice and insatiableness use that word, which I don't. It literally means the desire to have more. It aims to consume us. It aims to occupy our mental, emotional space. So Jesus' focus here is on money and possessions, but he intends all forms of greed, as he says, all manner of greed. And so greed and covetousness is this this compulsion for, for more and more, it's never enough. It's just never enough. Our eye is always fixed on the next thing. It's like that proverb, uh, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. It's Eve looking at that fruit. She has every single fruit in the garden, but she has to have that one too. She has to have it all. It's King David, he has multiple wives, yet there's this woman he spots that he's just got to have. Doesn't matter that she's the one wife of one of his best, strongest, most dependable soldiers. It just doesn't matter. He takes her and kills him. 
It's King Ahab, king of Israel. He owns so much, but he has to have Naboth's vineyard. He wants it. So when Naboth refuses to sell it, he gets sulky until Queen Jezebel says, I'll take care of it for you, murders him and gets him the vineyard. It's what greed and covetousness do. It, but you know, these are extreme examples. Now, like, surely we aren't greedy here. Like we aren't greedy. That's such a yucky thing to say about a person. To think about myself that I'm greedy. I remember reading Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and I just thought he said something so insightful. It was really convicting for me. He said, we can't, why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? Like, why don't we see it? He goes, you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your socioeconomic bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself. And this is the one of the easiest ways you say, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to them. There's a whole like demonically inspired socio-political economic thing that goes on that we just compare ourselves to those like us and a little bit better. And it's so true, I see it in me. We always want a little bit more to keep up with our peers, the, the, the next fashions, the better cars, the better houses, the toys, the experiences. I remember that little story about Rockefeller when the reporter asked him, you know, how much money is enough? He said, well, just a little bit more. It's always just a little bit more. And so Jesus lays out a foundational principle for success here. His principle for success is one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Get that clear in our minds, seniors, all of us. And what he's saying is the meaningful, satisfying life is not found in accumulating more and more things. So don't misdirect your time and energy. And so talking to the man, Jesus might say, it can lead you to ignore the most important person preaching the most important sermon at the most important time in the history of the world. And you're thinking about something else. So contrary to the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys does not win. It's not the gauge of success. And positively, if we approach it, your life is worth more to God than all your toys put together and your whole net worth. Now that's a tremendous statement, which he just said in verse seven. You are that valuable to me. It's gauged by my son. And so Jesus tells this gripping parable to drive home his point that the meaningful, satisfying life doesn't consist in more things. And so we think, why is that? And, and what does it consist of then? And so he tells this parable. He says, the land of a rich man yields a bumper crop. So the man kind of has this soliloquy. If he was in a play and he's dialoguing with himself, he goes, well, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. It's a nice problem. So he exercises some practical wisdom, some forward planning, and decides, well, I will do this. I will tear down my old barns, 
and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain, and not just all my grain, but all my goods. And so notice that his yield is so great, he needs multiple new barns to store them, and that his prudence and foresight will enable him not only to store all his grain, but also all his goods as well. Like he's doing a real significant revamp. And so up to this point, what he does just seems natural. I mean, it's a kind of a neutral statement at this point. It's just the American dream. But, um, of course he's gonna think this way. Furthermore, we could even say um, he seems like a model businessman. He's, he's kind of savvy and shrewd. He's a guy you want to get lunch with and talk over strategic planning and vision casting. And, and just to be clear, there's nothing in Jesus' story that hints at him being dishonest or oppressing the poor or doing anything underhanded. He seemed like a, a decent guy, like he's doing for his family. Probably has a lot of interests, enjoyable to be around. However, as he continues dialoguing with himself, all of a sudden we discover his thinking is deeply flawed and wrong to the core. The whole bedrock is cracked. Because it's his ultimate why, it's why he's doing what he's doing. It's his outlook on life. It's the all important question, who am I and what am I living for? Like why am I here? And so what he says is, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And that's it. That's all he says. That's all he's after. He lives for leisure, for feasting, and for pleasure. On the surface, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says similar things, but it's radically different. We could look at that and we say, well, is increased wealth wrong? Absolutely not. Is having desires wrong? Absolutely not. It's his why. It's where he stops. And then we realize just how self-centered he's been all along. In verses 17 through 19, it's really all about me. Did you notice all the eyes and mys? In fact, he says I eight times, and he says my four times. It's I, I, it's my, my soul, my barns. It's, he's in the grip of self-centeredness and self-satisfied view of life. He's just thinking about himself. It stops there. His own comfort and enjoyment, it just stops there. And so we can say a few things about this man. First, he lives like God's not there. He's a practical atheist. He surely goes to synagogue. Everybody went to synagogue. He theoretically believes in God, but God does not figure into any of his thinking. Again, it's all about me, so there's no room for God really in his practical life. And it's really a scary place that we can get to. Like instead of saying to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, he should have been saying in Psalm 103, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Radical change. Everyone knows where his wealth came from. The parable itself said the land of a rich man produced plentifully. God gave the land, he gave the sun, and he gave the rain, and it produced a bumper crop. He's deluded himself as to the source of all his blessings, and no gratitude has been uttered from his lips. His economic windfall should have generated abounding thanks to such a generous God. Psalm 103 should have been on his lips. He speaks to his soul about how he's going to relax rather than speaking to his soul about honoring the Lord. Second, he lives like he has no responsibility to needy people and no interest in God's good and gracious kingdom. One commentator, Nolan, says it this way. I like it. He says, at this point, with so much wealth at his disposal, this person should have rightly have seen that his responsibilities had only just begun. You see, increased wealth presents a stewardship issue, but that's not even on his radar. Like, it didn't even hit his mind. And so Jesus is going to give the principle in verse 48, everyone to whom much was given of him, much was required. The biblical idea is recipients of God's lavish generosity are then to become instruments of lavish generosity to others. And hit his radar. Third, he lives like there's no judgment day that he's not accountable to God. This whole section, Judgment Day, figures prominently. And so we look at this guy, he has this long-term planning and vision-casting gifting, and yet in an ultimate sense, it's terribly short-sighted. He doesn't figure on entering into eternity. He never asked what happens when I die and I stand before God. It's like the story that Sinclair Ferguson passes along that says, these junior devils are taking an exam and they're taking it with a senior devil. And so the senior devil just gives them one question on their final exam. It's this all important question for a devil And he asked these junior devils, what are you going to say to human beings? What are you going to whisper in their minds to divert them from faith in Jesus Christ to keep them from believing in God? What are you gonna do? So the first devil says, well, I'm going to whisper to them that there's no God. And the senior devil replies, well, they're not gonna believe you. They know deep down inside that there's a God. Don't you remember eternity was put in their hearts? So then the second one steps up and he goes, well, I'm going to tell them that there's no judgment. Senior devil replies, look, we've tried that tack a ton of times. It just doesn't work. I mean, we can't silence their guilty consciences that remind them, that break into their settled lives and disturb them and tell them judgment's coming. We can't, that's not the way. So the third one says, sir, I plan to tell them there's just no hurry. 
And the senior devil pauses and he goes, yeah, that'll work. Tell them they got all the time in the world. And there's just no hurry. Before you know it, their greed and covetousness will occupy their minds. They're just gonna forget all about it. It's short-sighted future planning. There's no hurry, but you see, judgment day is coming. And for this man, it's much sooner than he ever would have thought. And so Jesus says, God breaks in in this self-centered man's life and says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And we get this idea that the very goods and the bumper crop have generated in this farmer this sense of safety and security for years. But God says you really only have hours. Therefore, your whole mindset is wrong. And so God's obituary, his epitaph for him is fool. It's here's a man who planned without reference to God, who lived refusing to acknowledge his dependence on God. And so Jesus crystallizes the point of his parable when he says, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And that's what success is all about, the meaningful, satisfying life, keeping what matters in the forefront. We don't want to fall in the greed trap and lay up treasures only for ourselves. We want to use all God blesses us with in such a way that we're rich towards him. And we find is that it's life of gratitude to God, deep thanks to God. We find that it's a life of generosity to others, be it our time, our talents, or our treasures. We find it's a life keeping the goal in mind that I'm heading towards heaven. I'm not yet in heaven. And it's a life cherishing that God, in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, is the very opposite of this self-centered farmer. The barns of God's grace are always available for you. He's built a ton of them and they're at your disposal. And if you ever doubted that, then you look upon the son whose riches itself in heaven that God sent down to this earth for you in order by losing his own life, he might buy you back to God. And so it's a life of being so amazed by God's riches for us in Jesus that we want to share the riches of his grace with others. And might that be our attitude? Seniors, might you go out delighting in God's gifts, rejoicing in your abilities, plunging into this world, but with your why clear that you wanna be grateful to God, you wanna be generous to others, and you want to keep your goal clearly in mind. And might that be the case for all of us here today? And God's people said, amen. Let's stand.